You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, how grateful we are that we can look to heaven. Whence comes our help, as David said in the Psalms. We come to you this morning looking for your guidance and your direction through your spirit, knowing that you've promised to provide what we cannot provide, and that you can lead us into that experience that you want for us. May Christ, our righteousness, be lifted up today in Jesus' name. Uh, before I get into uh, the direction I want to go, I want to make this one comment. It's been a real privilege for me to be able to work together with my brother Mark and uh, brother Howard. Um, I've learned over the last years that we've worked together has been given a special gift. He's able to remember a tremendous amount of the spirit of prophecy. I don't know if he has a photographic memory, but... Uh, I've noticed that he doesn't seem to be short on any particular reference or quote, and that's a wonderful gift. It doesn't happen to be a gift that I have, but both of us have been blessed to study this, uh, this topic. I hate to use that word because it's the gospel. Gospel is not a topic. It's a living experience over the years of our ministry, and it's been a real privilege for me to be able to work with Elder Howard. Um, I, I want to, to give credit where credit is due. He has put a tremendous amount of effort into the material that we are working with here together today. And uh, I'm retiring, as most of you know, and I'm so grateful that Elder Howard and the rest of the team who have been studying this wonderful, most precious message will continue to lift up Jesus here in the Michigan Conference. I'll be praying for you from Tennessee. You pray for me in Tennessee. And uh, don't worry about the weather. God will take care of that. Just pray that we can all keep our eyes on Jesus and do that. I'd like to begin uh, going into our brief review today. Yesterday, we were talking about the imparted righteousness of Christ and its connection with sanctification or we were talking about sanctification and its connection with imparted righteousness of Christ, however you want to phrase that sentence. We learned that sanctification, like justification, is also by... You all are good students. I really appreciate this group. Ellen White makes this comment, the soul is to be sanctified through the truth. And this also is accomplished through... For it is only by the grace of Christ which we receive through that the character can be transformed. The work of Christ is to transform our lives. That is His work. We learn that our effort is an essential part of the sanctification process, that we have fallen natures that must be battled against. You and I get up in the morning, we surrender our lives to Christ. We surrender our lives to Christ because we have a fight to fight that day. I'm not talking about this kind, but it might help if the devil could show up and we had to do this with him because we really, really understand what it's all about. We have fallen natures that we have to fight against as we seek to maintain our connection with Christ. Again, looking at Mount of Blessing, page 141, we looked at yesterday, God alone can give us the victory. He desires us to have the mastery over ourselves, our own will and ways. But He cannot work in us without our consent and cooperation. The Divine Spirit works through the faculties and powers given to man. Our energies are required to cooperate with God. Not a blessing, page 141. By the way, we are going to post these materials, Brother Mark. So if some of you say, man, I didn't get that part, there's going to be audio, there's going to be video, and there's going to be printed documentation as well available to you online. So 
we that we'll get that word out through whatever mechanisms that we can. Obviously, the most logical place is go to MISDA.org and, and it will uh, be present there. We also learned yesterday that even though we put forth effort, it's not our own strength. This is an area that it can be very confusing to people. And we all struggle to understand what that means. But it's not in our strength that this effort gains any ground. In the strength of Christ is where that effort gains ground. It is God who sanctifies us and not we ourselves. Again, in Steps to Christ, Ellen White said, Our growth in grace, our joy, our usefulness all depend upon our union with Christ. It is by communion with Him daily, hourly, by abiding in Him that we are to grow in grace. He is not only the author, but the finisher of our It is Christ first and last always. I don't think I've continued on to catch up with this. There we go. He is to be with us not only at the beginning and the end of the course, but at every step of the way. And finally, we learned yesterday that we'll all end in utter defeat. Making sure you're awake. In utter victory. That's the good news. The gospel is good news because Jesus was victorious and we are walking with him and he brings to us victory. You know, when you think about the walk with Christ, I want to digress just a moment here before we go into our topic for today. When you think of walking with Christ, we talked about walking, Enoch walking with the Lord yesterday, right? Think also of Cleopas and his friend as they were walking along the road to Emmaus. Had Jesus literally walking, literally as in they could see him, they just didn't see him as they were walking together on that road. And Pastor Howard and I were talking last night and I made this comment, it came to my mind. I just have find it hard to think that you could be walking along with Jesus and you could say, you know, Lord, can we just stop here and rob this bank real quick? I'd just like to, you know, get a little extra money and I'd like to take care of that. Lord, there's a bar up ahead. Could we stop and get a drink? You know, it's something about walking with Jesus, literally walking with Jesus. Could you find it easy to digress off some other direction? into something we know that Jesus would not accept. So what is it about the Christian life where the New Testament makes it clear that we are to walk as he walked? That's what we are told. Walk as he walked. So he walked with the Father. We walk with him. And you know what? When you're walking with Jesus, he's going with you side by side. And he's promised to guide us in every step. Today we want to direct our attention heavenward, literally, and talk about our connection with the heavenly sanctuary and that how the heavenly sanctuary connects with righteousness by faith. One might ask, how does it connect? What does it have to do with the subject of righteousness by faith? The simple answer begins with a letter, the letter E. Everything. It is everything to us in understanding. When you think about faith, you can't just think of faith in relationship to, well, I, I have faith. Faith in what? Oh, I just have faith. Faith in who? Oh, I just have faith. Faith has to have something to look at, right? Faith has to have an object. You can't just have faith, and our faith is not just faith, it's faith in someone, Jesus Christ. Amen? And if we were able to go where Jesus is right now, where would we go? Where would we go? 
we would go to the heavenly sanctuary. And let's be, get the word out, specific. Where in the heavenly sanctuary would we go? To the most holy place is exactly where we would go. And we want to be able to understand this in the context of this verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn to Hebrews, please. Might be good for you to keep your finger in here today. That's not the only place we'll go, but Hebrews is certainly is an important part of what we're going to be talking about. Hebrews chapter 12, and look at verse 2. 1, I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking, verse 2, unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The context, book of Hebrews, is the focus on the sanctuary, isn't it? So when Paul tells us to look to Jesus, he's telling us to look to Jesus in the sanctuary, in the most holy place of the sanctuary. In chapter 3, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you can just look over there uh, as I make this comment. In Hebrews chapter 3, the apostle urges us to consider Jesus in two distinct roles. The first role is that of apostle. Not one that we often think of in relationship to Christ, but I'll mention a little bit more about that in a moment here. And the second is as Christ as high priest. Now, we understand the high priestly role in connection with the sanctuary. That's not confusing to us in the sense that we've heard that a lot. But we don't often think about Jesus as the apostle. But it is a term that clearly references Jesus. Apostle means sent. John chapter 3, verse 16, what did God do? He sent His only Son to us, didn't He? And interestingly enough, Ellen White uses this expression often in speaking of Jesus. In Desire of Ages, page 168, she says, He no doubt had could not doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was sent of God. Context, John 3 and especially in that whole experience there. And Ellen White, she speaks of Jesus as sent in relationship to his earthly ministry 102 times. Sent into our world to save sinners like you and me. Paul wanted his readers to consider Jesus' earthly ministry, but he didn't stop there. So first of all, he refers to Jesus as the apostle and his earthly ministry. He refers to that, and then he directs us to him in his high priestly ministry, which is directing us to the sanctuary. Take a look at this statement from Genesis. Uh, Genesis. Great Controversy, page 488. Subject of the sanctuary. And the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Are you the people of God? Then you should clearly understand it. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith, which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. If it's the center, it's the focus, it's where we should be looking, isn't it? We should understand what is being spoken of there. It concerns every soul living on the earth. It opens the view to view, the plan of redemption, brings us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is 
of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer to everyone that asketh them a reason of the hope that is in them. And then she says, the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as in, is essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Do you understand why Satan has repeatedly attacked the sanctuary message, especially in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? He doesn't have to attack it in other denominations. God bless them, but they don't have an understanding of the sanctuary. It's not a focus for them. But he comes and concentrates, Satan does, his efforts in the Seventh-day Adventist Church to undermine the work of Christ in the sanctuary. Hence, we've had the Ford heresies and the other kinds of things that have come down over the years trying to undermine the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary because it's essential to the plan of salvation, just as essential as the death of Christ on the cross. That's why many denominations who believe that the cross was all of it and it's done and you crazy Adventists have got this idea of Christ in the sanctuary having something to do that there's a work beyond the cross is an attack of Satan. By his death he began that work which after his resurrection he ascended to complete in heaven. This work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is our focus of our study today because it's at the heart of the third angel's message. Elder Howard? Words cannot express, you overdid it, Elder Snaman. Words cannot express how privileged I feel to have, have worked with uh, this gentleman. And uh, he's been an inspiration. And uh, um, I'm glad that we were able to do this seminar. It is a passion of both of us. As I believe it is of each one of you, that's why you're here. should be the passion of every Seventh-day Adventist. This subject is going to swallow up every other, we're told. We showed you a quote like that. But I want to get into this. Uh, oh, what a topic. And there's so much we could say. I want to zero in. Well, before I do, let's just pray. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, I too want to just ask that your Holy Spirit would guide my thoughts and our understandings, Lord. Uh, I know that I'm not going to say it just exactly right but I trust your Holy Spirit will convey it to our hearts and minds right. Uh, our dependence is on you and the Spirit of truth who leads us into truth. So, Father, bless us, not just in a theoretical way, but in a practical way. In the remainder of time we have today, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go back and look at a couple things in this particular quote, because Elder Stephen had brought this out. We've gotten attacked outside the church and sometimes even inside the church when we talk about the sanctuary, in fact, it's ironic to me that a lot of Adventists say, well, the sanctuary is so unsettling, and it makes me so uncertain, and it, and it robs me of my assurance. And it's designed to be exactly the opposite. And, and for the non-Seventh-day Adventists, they, they talk all about being Christ-centered, but don't miss it. Where is Jesus? Adventists did not make this up. We can go and look at the book of Hebrews, and Paul is very clear. In fact, the priestly ministry of Christ... Where does Jesus' priestly ministry take place? If you go to Hebrews 8, the Apostle Paul says, if he were on earth, he could not be a priest. Because he was of the wrong tribe, he was of the tribe of Judah, and the earthly priest had to be of the tribe. That's his argument. The point is, Jesus' high priestly ministry, if it couldn't be on the earth, had to be in heaven. And so if you're not teaching the heavenly sanctuary, you've cut out this huge portion of Christ's work, and then you're going to call yourself Christ-centered? How can you center on Christ if you're not centering on the center of where Christ is? The work that he's doing in the heavenly and I want you to notice something else that I think is fascinating here, and please don't misunderstand me, but Ellen White says... The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood. All need a knowledge for themselves of the design of the tabernacle, the tent stakes, the curtains, the colors. I'm going to tell you, we do so much on the sanctuary in the Seventh-day Adventist Church about the structure. 
But I will challenge you, if you look into Ellen White's writings, when she talks about the sanctuary, she spends very, very, very little talking about the structure. What she talks about is the position and work of the high priest. What's Jesus doing there? What does that have to do with me and my experience? I want to share with you a statement I don't have on the screen. I wish I did, but it's in the book Education. On page 15, Ellen White tells us here to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. This is the object of education, the great object of life. Did you follow that? Okay, good, because I'm going to test you on it. What was the work of redemption? To restore man into the image of God. What sense would it make, then, if the gospel didn't restore man into the image of God? This is what the gospel is about. We're talking about righteousness by faith. We're talking about the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is to restore man into the image of God. This is the work of Jesus as our high priest. So when we talk about his high priestly work and the investigative judgment, and we get the idea, as I'm going to go on to a little bit further in this presentation, that Jesus is up there just checking off names. We get the wrong idea of what's happening. Jesus' work is to restore in humanity the image of God. Righteousness by faith is the essence of the third angel's message. I think we looked at this the other day. From the book, uh, from a Review and Herald article of April 1, 1890, Ellen White says, Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity, in truth, in reality. The third angel's message, she says, is the message of justification by faith. If that's so, and if the third angel himself Oh, I didn't show you that one yet. I missed it. It skipped over this slide. Oh, do I not have that one? Did it move on me? It's okay. I have it in my notes. Nope, here it is. Notice this in early writings. Now, in early writings, Ellen White sees a vision, the vision that John saw. I, I did that on purpose. Because if I put it up there, then you're going to read ahead and you're not going to hear the intro. So you know, I set this statement up. I want you to understand what's happening here. Ellen White saw, I believe, what John the Revelator saw. John saw three angels flying in the midst of heaven, and he saw the angels giving the messages. Now, we read about the angels giving the messages, but we don't see what they were doing. But Ellen White saw something that the third angel did when he gave his message. Check this out. The third, angel's the third angel closes his message thus, or in this way. Here is the patience of the saints... Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As he repeated these words, he pointed where? To the heavenly sanctuary. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And then he put, what's that have to do with anything? What it's telling, what it's telling us is the anchor of God's people's faith is in what Jesus is doing. And you understand you ever get discouraged in your Christian walk and feel like you're alone? I've told people before, in fact, I remember a, a, a brand new church member in my very first church, and she was talking about some people would argue and say, well, for, you know, Adventists don't get it because they say that, you know, there's this sanctuary in heaven, but it was all done at the cross. And I said, if everything was done at the cross, I'm lost because I still got problems and who's going to take care of them? Now, I know somebody here could tell me about, yeah, but by faith we do it, and there's up. It's not my point. The point is that right now, we have a Savior who at the moment we're even sitting here, at the moment you're still struggling with things that I don't know, but you know, and the Lord knows. And the Lord right now is helping you. He's there to intercede for you at this very moment. We have an ever-present help in time of need. Jesus, even to this moment, is working in our behalf. And the angels, he repeats these words. He points to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is doing that work. 
If the third angel's message is justification by faith, and the third angel himself pointed believers to Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary as he gave that message, the third angel's message, the message of justification by faith, it would follow that the experience of justification by faith is tied closely to the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Right? Going to do it again. Because I'm not sure you're with me. If the third angel's message is justification by faith in verity, and if the third angel himself pointed to the heavenly sanctuary as he repeated that message, it would follow that the experience of justification by faith is tied closely to Christ's work as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And that the true assurance of the believer in Jesus comes from understanding and cooperating with him in that work. That's why Ellen White said, not that, that's why Ellen White said, all need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, notice, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith, which is, which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position which God designs that they would fill. Now, I'm going to divert for a little bit, but you're going to, we're going to come around here. I want you to take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation, and I want you to see something here that we really need to understand. Revelation chapter 13, right there at the end, we'll start in verse 16. In Revelation 13, verse 16, we are looking at the final contest on earth prior to the coming of Jesus. The final test of faith over the mark of the beast issue. And I've met too many Seventh-day Adventists who think that as long as they know the right day to worship on, they're good. Because when the pressure comes and they say, you need to worship on the first day of the week, I'll say, no, 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 I know better than that. And because I know it up here, I'm going to be safe. I want you to see something here in Revelation 13, verse 16. The Bible says, he's speaking of the uh, two-horned beast in the last days, causes all... Speaking of the first beast, pardon me, in, in um, Revelation the Antichrist beast, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their what? Foreheads. And notice that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Keep reading. The Bible kept going. There weren't original chapter breaks. John's, the scene has changed. He looks to another place. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having what? It says his father's name. Or if you're reading in a new translation, it says his name and his father's name where? In their foreheads. Now, here's what I want you to note from this. At the end of time, there's not one mark, there's two marks. Now, the mark of the beast is in the forehead or in the hand, but both marks appear in the forehead, and both contain a name. And that's very significant. In the Scripture, name often refers to character. Okay, You may recall that Jacob's name meant, so names meant something. Right? When, when Abraham finally had the child of promise, what'd they name him? Isaac. The child of promise. Abraham and Sarah. Isaac. Right? Why'd they name him Isaac? What does Isaac mean? Does anybody know? Laughter. Means laughter. Why did they name him laughter? Because when God came to them in their old age and said, you're going to have a kid, they laughed at God. And so the name was significant of something. When you come to Jacob, Jacob was named Jacob, which means deceiver, usurper, supplanter. Because he grabbed his brother's heel on the way out, the Bible says, and later on deceived his brother out of the birthright. But he didn't carry the name Jacob his whole life, did he? Because he had an encounter with Christ, and after his encounter with Christ, what did Christ do? He changed his name. And he changed his name to Israel, which meant a prince with God. Names were significant of characteristics, and we could go on about that, but I want you to go to the book of Exodus with me, chapter 33. Exodus 33, and we're going to get, begin in verse 18. 
Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses asks the Lord a question it would do us well to ask him on a regular basis. The Lord says, you have not because you have, James says, you have not because you ask not. Jesus said, ask that you may receive. Moses said, please show me your, what? Glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my what? He didn't say glory, did he? He said goodness. What that tells us is that goodness is another way of saying glory. What's another way of saying goodness? What's a person's goodness? Hold on to the thought. I'll make my goodness pass before you, and I will, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. So there's another way of saying it. So what the Bible's giving us here is that glory and goodness and name are synonymous. Now we're going to fast forward here, and we're going to come into chapter 34, where the Lord actually comes before Moses, and he proclaims the commandments again, and Moses brings tables of stone. And the Bible says in, in chapter 34, verse 5, Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed what? The name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What's he, what's he giving here? Characteristics. The point I want you to get is when God proclaimed his name, he was proclaiming his character. Name in the Bible often refers to character. Glory refers to character. Fear God and give glory to Him. There's a character element we're going to see. The final test in Revelation with the marks has to do with the character you have, not with what you know. And so there are a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who say, I know Saturday is the right day, just like Peter knew that to deny Christ was the wrong answer. And because he had the right answer, he said, No, I'll never do I'll die for you, Lord. But Peter didn't know his character. And he didn't realize that his character would default him to the wrong choice, even though he knew the right answer. The test at the end of time is a test of character. And my friends, to me, this everything we've been covering this week, this is the devil's false teachings of righteousness by faith. Convince people that they don't have a personal work to do with Christ to allow him to work his character out in them. They say, oh, I believe in Jesus and I'll never overcome. And you're going to see this in some statements as we go on. And the devil loves it because he knows that when the final test comes, they're not going to have the character they need. Jesus himself gave that, that taught that clearly in a parable of ten bridesmaids. How many of you remember the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25? Now, if you've done extensive study, you know, and not even necessarily extensive, but the idea of being virgins means they had a pure faith. Okay, so in other words, in Ellen White's words, she said these were not hypocrites. She didn't have the good guys and the bad guys. They all had the right intentions. They all had a pure faith. And in Matthew 25, what happens is they had oil and they had lamps and their lamps were on. But something happened while they were waiting for the bridegroom to come. Incidentally, the coming of the bridegroom, who's the bridegroom? Jesus, and his coming represented ultimately a second coming. And so as they're waiting there, something happened to them. What was it? Now, I really like this because if you read it in the book of Matthew, it says they slumbered and slept. How many of you remember that terminology? Is anybody like me and you're like, why didn't you just say they slept? Why'd they have to slumber and sleep? Why don't you save some words and just say they slept? Well, here's why you don't save words. Because the word slumber is not the same as sleep. And the word translated slumbered literally means to nod. You know what it means to nod? Pastors know that you know what it means to nod. <laughs> when, we, when we get less than interesting, right? Now, so the idea is to nod off, slumbered and slept, nodding off. And I like to ask people, what is the difference between nodding off and going to bed? You plan to go to bed, but nobody plans to nod off. And every one of the faithful virgins nodded off. They didn't intend to. And when they awoke, one group realized that they had their lamps were flickering. They all realized their lamps were flickering, but one group had brought extra oil. 
and one group didn't. Right? And so when they went to trim their lamps, the group that didn't have enough oil went to their friends and they said, will you give us some of that oil? And I don't know if you, like me, read that story at some point and thought, because the, what, you remember what they said to their friends? No, we can't give you enough oil or we won't have enough oil. And I said, what kind of Christian are you? Right? Don't we sing in Sabbath school and cradle roll, I have two dollies and you have none? I'll share my dolly because I love you because that's what Jesus wants me to do? You're not going to share? That's not Christian. You understand what I'm saying? Until you realize the imagery there. Now the oil, let's start with the lamp. Thy word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. The lamp represents the word of God. What does the oil represent? The Holy Spirit. Put them together in what's it conveying? It's conveying the work of the Spirit as we, and we've looked at it in sanctification, as we apply ourselves to following the Word, the Spirit of God develops in us a character in harmony with the Word. The oil and the lamp are character. Can you give character to somebody else? No, character is something that comes from experience. And so it dawned on me. Wow, it wasn't that they were being selfish. No matter how much you want to, you can't give somebody character. Character isn't formed in a moment. Nobody can come up to the end of time and develop character. A character for heaven. And the devil knows it, so he's going to keep us busy thinking it's not important until we get right up there, and then he's going, oh, well, too bad. And it will be too late. And in the parable, what happened? They came to that wedding, and the door was shut. And they were on the outside. Did you have? I I realized that through studying, but why does it say that then we won't have enough for ourselves? Why does it say that like that? Because it, it's just conveying the idea that you can't transfer it. You can't you can't give character to somebody else. Now notice this statement here. Ellen White in Christ's Object Lessons makes this point. The light of his glory, and then she explains his what? Character is to shine forth in his believers. This statement in education, I'm giving you a piece of it. I'd encourage you to go and read this whole passage in education. It's phenomenal. But notice what Ellen White says here in education. The harvest of life is what? Character. And it is this that determines destiny both for this life and for the life to come. The harvest is a reproduction of the seed sown. Every seed yields fruit after its kind. So it is with the traits of character we cherish. That means we hold on to them. Selfishness, self-love, self-esteem, self-indulgence reproduce themselves, and the end is wretchedness and ruin. The harvest of life is character. I want to talk to you briefly about how character is formed. Go to Romans with me, chapter 5. How many of you are parents here? How many of you as parents, as parents have ever said these words to your kids, but it forms character? Then you know where I'm going. You know what? The things that form character for our kids also form character for us. Wah, wah, right there comes, the whole thing comes. Romans 5, notice verse 1. Now therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And notice, we rejoice in the hope. Let's pause there. What does a person hope for? I'm not talking about a specific thing. What he doesn't have, right? You don't hope for what you have. You hope for what you don't have. We're rejoicing in the hope of something we don't yet have. What is it? The glory God. What's glory? We just looked at it. Christ promises his character to his followers. We rejoice in the hope of that in this experience. This is where we are now. Now notice what he says in the next verse. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, or patience in the King James, and perseverance Character And the King James says experience, which is interesting to me because character and experience go together. But I want you to understand this process. Tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope, 
and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us as a guarantee, he says elsewhere. Understand how this works. Tribulation produces perseverance. What kind of things do you persevere at? Let's say you want an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii. Are you going to persevere to do that? Probably not. I'm not thinking perseverance when I'm talking about it. Oh, how about going down and getting some ice cream? Let's go get some ice cream, but persevere on that cone, right? Are you going to persevere? Is that where you're thinking perseverance? No, you're thinking about, I got to clean out the attic. I got to clean out the garage. I got to go dig a ditch, right? You persevere at things that are what? Stressful, difficult, whatever, okay? Tribulations, hardships. It's in the face of hardship that you have to persevere. And so the apostle says tribulation works perseverance. It puts you in a situation where you have to push through an obstacle. But pushing through the obstacle does what? How many of you, I don't want to know what obstacle, how many of you have pushed through obstacles in your life? What does that do for you? Do you like it while it's happening? How many of you can look back though and say, I'm glad for the experience because it's made me a stronger person? That's the development of character. And friends, listen to me. There are things that you and I go through in this life, oftentimes with little thought that God's using it to develop character. Somebody was telling me yesterday they struggle with their temper. And then, I don't understand why it is. Long I get into this situation, lo and behold, I lose my temper again. Let me give you a little newsflash. Oftentimes, God leads you right into a place where you will lose your temper. So you can see your need for him. And I'll tell you something else. Sometimes we feel like I have this temper problem and all the time I just fly off the handle, but you don't realize that you're not flying off the handle the same as you used to. God is just bringing you into more and more trying experiences to go deeper and deeper to develop that character. If you have your eyes on yourself, you're going to get discouraged, like looking at the tree grow I mentioned the other day. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Does Jesus know what he's doing? He sure does. And what the apostle says, it's amazing. Tribulation works perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character works hope. Because we can see. You've heard it said, I may not be where I want to be, but I'm not where I used to be. I see things God has done in my life. Well, what does that mean? What the, 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 the work Jesus started in you, he's going to finish. That's what it says in Philippians 1.6. He has begun a good work in you. Did Jesus start a work? And he's like, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go. He's going to finish what he started, is he not? Ellen White tells us in uh, Review and Herald, April 8th, while Christ is cleansing the sanctuary, the worshipers on earth should carefully review their life and compare their what? Character with the standard of righteousness as they see their defects. Question, how do I see my defects? Only through the Holy Spirit. You read it in the book Steps to Christ. Ellen White says that when we see our sinfulness, we can know Satan's delusion is broken. What does that tell us? He doesn't want you to see your sinfulness. I always say Satan has a plan A and plan B. Plan A is he doesn't want you to see your sinfulness because what might you do when you see your sinfulness? You might think of going to Jesus. He doesn't want that. But once he's lost that battle and the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your sinfulness, then comes plan B. And he's like, okay, they see their sinfulness. I'm going to tell you, you're so sinful. Don't even bother going to Jesus. Don't listen to him. It's the Spirit of God who showed your sinfulness, not Satan. And the Spirit of God showed you because he's going to do something with it. And so, as Elder Jones said, and we read this yesterday, when you see sinfulness in your flesh, rejoice that you must have so much of the Spirit of God that you can see it. And trust that, the God, that God's going to do something about it. As they see their defects, they should seek the aid of the Spirit of God to enable them to have moral strength to resist the temptations of Satan and to reach the perfection of the standard. They may be victors over the very temptations which seem too strong for humanity to bear, for the divine power will be combined with their human effort, and Satan cannot overcome. Oh, hallelujah. Well, I'm going to have to skip over some stuff. But I want to make sure the point is clear. Now, see, when we talk about Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary as a high priest, I know that for some Seventh-day Adventists, 
what they see, what they visualize, is Jesus standing in front of a bunch of ledger books, and he's going page after page, and he's like, nope, nope, scratch this off, oh, this is it. That's not what Jesus is doing as our high priest. His work is a very dynamic work. It's an interactive work. I've had discussions with people who, who have told me, and I'm not going to totally disagree with this, they say, you know, what we really need to just focus on is our devotional life with Jesus. Don't focus on striving and those sins that beset us and everything. Well, that's not scriptural, but um, it kind of is. This is what I mean. I have a devotional life with Jesus. I spend time with Jesus. But there's never a time I spend time with Jesus where he's not telling me stuff. Right? Anytime I have devotional time, I'm reading in the scripture and the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says, what about that there? Yeah, I'm not really like that. If I read something about how I should be more kind and patient, it's not just like, oh yeah, I'm that. You understand what I'm saying? This is the dynamic, like, as our heavenly high priest, Jesus walks us into situations and he reveals to us where those areas of weakness are, and then he says, I want to give you strength there, but he won't force himself, will he? He says, will you let me give you strength there? I'm going to say something that may upset you, and, and I guess I can deal with it later. We love words like, like, let, and like, surrender, and like yield, and like give over. They're all passive. I can't do I'm going to sit down. I'm going to let go. But let's be very clear about something. What does it practically mean for me to surrender to Jesus' will? I'm going to give you the word that we don't like. Obey. That, that's What is obedience? It means instead of going with my will, I'll do your will. That's surrender. If a soldier's fighting in a battle, and he surrenders to the opposing army... That means instead of taking orders from this captain, he's taking orders from this captain. Are you following what I'm saying? No, I'm not talking about my own gusto and my own strength, but I'm talking about, I'm not going to have time for, I may take that hand in a minute, but I'm talking about this is, this is this dynamic work. As we continue to walk with Jesus, Jesus reveals things that need work. This is not about our standing with God. This is not Jesus saying, do this and then I will accept you. For a lot of people, it's like, oh, I just never have a because I'm not good enough. And he doesn't. No, he's already accepted you. You're already in the plan. You're in the program. He's not showing you stuff because he's saying, look at this and this. This is why I'm not letting you in. He's saying, now that you're in, this and this is what I'm going to do for you to get you all the way through. And that perspective changes everything. I want to turn our attention to this statement here. Um, no, I got to jump past. It's another one. Notice what it says in Great Controversy. It says, if those who hide and excuse their faults could see how Satan exalts over them, kind of rejoices and gets all puffed up about it, how he taunts Christ and holy angels with their course. Like, these are your followers. These are the people who love you. She says, if we could, if those who hide and excuse their faults could see that, they would make haste to confess their sins and put them away. Notice this piece here now. Through what? Defects in the character, Satan works to gain control of the whole mind. And he knows that if these defects are cherished, he will succeed. Not if we have them, we all have them. We all have defects. And so Jesus wants to get those defects out because that's Satan's vantage ground. And Satan knows it. If he can get you to cherish him, hold on to him. No, I'm not going to let you have this one, Jesus. He knows he's going to succeed. Therefore, now notice, well, how's he going to, what's his angle here? Therefore, he is constantly seeking to deceive the followers of Christ with his, what kind of sophistry? Fatal sophistry that it is impossible for them to overcome. Oh, saints, I hear this in the church all the time. I can't, I just, I have to sin and I'm never going to totally be able to overcome. That's Satan's fatal sophistry to keep you holding on to that character defect where he has that advantage, that vantage ground. But Jesus pleads in their behalf, his wounded hands, his bruised body, and he declares to all who would follow him, my grace is sufficient for thee. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am weak and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let none then regard their defects as incurable. God will give faith and grace to overcome them. Elder Snaman. Let's uh, realize that we have so much to talk about, and there's so little time. I'm just watching that clock, and it's just running ahead. This is the essence of what we need for today. We're Seventh-day Adventists who have been blessed with a wonderful sanctuary message. But we've not only been blessed by the sanctuary message, we've been blessed by wonderful Bible truths. Amen? From 1844 and on, God's people were, and before that, they were constantly being led back to the Bible. Our doctrinal truths are essential to us because they are part of that connection with Jesus along the way. They are not legalistic requirements. They are personal connections with Jesus. The Sabbath is not a requirement of the law. Yes, it is, but it's a requirement of a relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants us to spend time with him. Why do we want to spend time with him? Because we love him and we want to be committed to him. And the Sabbath is that that essence. But it may be that there are times when we keep the Sabbath and it's going to cost us something. How many times have our young men in the army given up literally their lives, if not at least their freedom and all to stand for the truth of the Sabbath and say, I can't do that. I can't do that because... That would offend my God. It would damage my relationship with Jesus. And God has honored them for their faith. These things, these truths, build in our connection, our relationship with Jesus. We're not talking about majoring in minors, as some people like to say. But we're recognizing that our more distinctive doctrines are there to develop our relationship with Jesus. These doctrines affect our connection with Christ, and our character is developed by working with Him along the way. Ellen White in Desire of Ages says, it is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind, and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth, working through the word of God, that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. Through truth, he is leading us into that connection with him, and we become subdued to Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 22. There's a whole sermon here. But Matthew chapter 22 is that wonderful parable of the, of the wedding garment. There are parallels in other places in scriptures. Jesus himself speaking of the garment. Revelation also connects us with that. In Matthew chapter 22 and looking at verse 1, Jesus spoke this and said, Uh, He spoke to them again in parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And they were invited to the wedding, right? This experience of going to the wedding and coming to the wedding was an invitation to salvation. Everybody who came to the wedding was invited to come. They all accepted the invitation to salvation. Yes, They came there, and many of them had on the robe. But there was one person who chose not to put the robe on. The robe was freely given. And when you look at how this man reacted to the question of the of the king, the king said, how'd you get in here like this? And the man didn't say, well, I didn't know I was supposed to have a robe on. Does he say that? No, he had an excuse. He had purposely chosen not to accept the robe. It was freely given to him, but he chose not to accept it. Notice what Ellen White says. Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of himself, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. 
When on earth he said to his disciples, I have kept my father's commandments. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. That connection with Christ. She goes on, that is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. There are movements within the Seventh-day Adventist Church that want to downplay the doctrines of the church, that want to downplay our need for being obedient to Christ, and that all we need is Jesus. Listen, you can't hang around Jesus and be disobedient to his commandments. It can't be done. I'm telling you, you can't walk along with Jesus and pull out your, your iPad and be looking at pornography. You can't be doing those kinds of things because you know Jesus doesn't want that in your life. And you closer you draw to him, those things are become not, you know they're offensive to him, but they become offensive to you because you realize how they affect Jesus and how Jesus is seeking to change your life. There are those in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14. Mark this down because we don't have time to turn to it right now. Revelation seven fourteen. there are those who will wash their robes. But what do they wash the robes in? The blood of Jesus. And those who are given white robes in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11. But where do they get those robes? They get those robes from Jesus. All robes are the result of the grace of Christ. But we must have the robe. I'm going to be brief here, but not brief enough for 10.30. But you will grant liberty. It is the last day of camp meeting. (laughs) Something Elder Stamen said, first of all, that that whole wedding garment parallel, that parable, rather, I, I want you to understand what's happening in that parable. There's a man who's there, who's accepted salvation. But when the king asks him about the garment when he asks him why he doesn't have the character that he's supposed to have, the Bible says he's speechless. Speechless because, and, and, and I told Elder Stamen, sometimes I ask somebody to say, you know, hey, why didn't you wear the green shirt I told you about today? You would look at me and say, wait a minute, you never told me about a green shirt, you, you, right? But this man, he doesn't have an excuse. He's speechless because he knows full well. He sat, perhaps, in a camp meeting seminar where he heard that it was important to have a sanctified character. But for some reason, somebody convinced him it wasn't important as long as he just showed up and said, I accept Jesus, and there he is, until the king comes in and investigates. And he realizes, too late, that he's not ready. The work of Jesus right now is to help us have that fitness for heaven, those characters for heaven. It's his work, not my work. But i got to cooperate with him in that work. And friends, I want to tell you, I'm not standing here in front of you as somebody who has no defects of character. And in my Christian life, I work hard in my Christian life. Oh, that sounds so legalistic. I work, I give more energy. Let me tell you something. I wasn't always a Christian. God forbid... I'm going to give more energy to the life I live for the devil than the life I live for God. Now, all that hard work I'm doing as a Christian, is it worth anything as far as merit with God? Oh, it's miserable. It's pitiful. Thank God that my standing isn't based on that. But I'm not doing it to earn something. I'm doing it because I love the Lord for what He's done for me. And I want Him to be the Lord of my life. And I've always got to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and His promises. Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 12, in the context of Jesus being our high priest that we started with, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. What kind of faith do you have? 
this morning. How many of you believe that Jesus is the author of your faith? Amen. How many of you want to hold on all the way to the finish? Amen. Is he the finisher? Amen. Jesus will do what he promised. We're to look unto him. We're to keep our focus on him and believe that what he started in us, he will complete. I want to finish with one of my absolute favorite statements from the book Great Controversy. It's in the chapter on the investigative judgment, facing life's record. And I love this. Notice what Elamite says. While Jesus is pleading for the subjects of his grace, that's you and me, Satan accuses them before God as transgressors. And it bothers me that he's so right. <laughs> right? The devil's a liar, but not about that. When he goes and tells God that Mark Howard's a sinner, he's right. Jesus does not excuse their sins, but shows their penitence and faith and claiming for them forgiveness. He lifts his wounded hands before the Father and the holy angels saying, I know them by name. I have graven them on the palms of my hands. Christ will clothe his faithful ones with his own righteousness that he may present them to his Father, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Their names stand enrolled in the book of life, and concerning them it is written, They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Worthy? Only in the righteousness of Christ. Oh, it were not done. It gets better. Satan, in his efforts to deceive and tempt our race, had thought to frustrate the divine plan in man's creation. You may have read that man was the crowning act of God's creation. And the devil came in and messed it. You think God just sat back and said, I guess he messed that one up? Oh, no. Satan thought he had it worked out. Notice now. This is just phenomenal. But Christ now asks, as our high priest, as our representative, bearing our humanity in the presence of his Father, Father, this is what I want. Christ now asks that this plan be carried into effect as if man had never fallen. He asks for his people not only pardon and justification, full and complete, but a share in his glory and a seat upon his throne. And my brothers and sisters, Jesus will get what he's asked the Father for. Will you exercise faith in that Savior? in that high priest, and keep your eyes focused on Jesus. That's our desire. Elders Naaman? All right. He's... I told him I wrestled. I had a very long statement, but I will compact it. That has been very impactful to me. It's kind of, it's on topic, but off topic. But in 1903, A.T. Jones gave a sermon before the General Conference session. Now it's been printed as what it means to be a church member. I don't know what the original title was. But in that sermon, Jones is talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary and the cleansing of God's people. And he makes this point. You know, the Revelation 14 in the third angel's message says, here are they that keep the commandments of God. Okay? Or in our vernacular, here they are. When does a person say, here they are? Oh, here they are. You ever looking for your car keys? <laughs> you ever looking for your glasses? <laughs> oh, here they are. That's something you say when you're looking for something. And time does not permit me to go through, like in Romans 8, when it says the whole creation is groaning and waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Where are they? Where are the people who are going to bear God's glory? Where are the people who are going to look like God? Here they are. Here are the ones who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here are the ones who give glory to God. Here are the ones who reflect the image of Jesus. Here they are. That's what it's saying in Revelation. Here they are. We found them. And A.T. Jones makes this point in that sermon. He says, you know, we can preach the gospel for 10,000 years. So the whole world hears it. We can preach it everywhere so that everybody on the earth has heard the gospel. But he said it's not enough to preach the gospel everywhere. The point of the message is that when that message has been preached, there's a people ready to meet him when he comes. And he said, if we don't have that people, we can preach that thing for 10,000 years. And Jesus will never come. We can sit here and come to camp meetings and talk about Jesus coming. And we can theorize and philosophize and theosophize about it. But until we take Jesus at his word by faith, 
and cooperate him in his work in us. We're not going to see that. And Jones says, but if we can have such consecration, such commitment to Christ, such faith, then we can see him come in this generation. Don't amen too fast. Because he preached that in 1903. And he never came in that generation. And we know from the pen of Ellen White, the Holy Spirit began to be poured out in latter rain power then. And here we still are. Because we theorize. Lord Jesus, help us to have a living faith. So we can cooperate with you and you can come in this generation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Father, you have spoken through clay. These are themes that we will be studying through eternity. Oh, but Lord, they warm our hearts just as they've warmed hearts throughout the ages. And they all come back to Jesus. His matchless charms. His incredible love for this lost race. Even to the point of taking upon himself our humanity and then ascending into heaven as our representative before your throne and claiming for us a seat on that throne with him. Father, we're undeserving. But may we be as grateful as we should. Despite our weaknesses, Lord, may we lay hold of your strength. And in this generation, be those people who show the character of Jesus to the world and usher in his second coming. Bless us to this end, Lord. Be with us through the remainder of this camp meeting. Your spirit is present, and may we hear things that will not just stir our our minds and our hearts, but motivate us to action. And we trust in you, Jesus, the author of our faith, that you will finish our faith as you promised. Thank you, for we pray this in your holy name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.